0: And answers. Critics argue that there is no mention of the Hebrews in Egyptian records. Critics argue that plagues killing a massive segment of the Egyptian population, ruining their food supply, the loss of their army, and a mass migration of slaves exiting Egypt, would have crippled the nation's economy, military, and government. If this were the case, why was it never mentioned in any Egyptian records? The critics seem to have a strong case. Are there any answers? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will reveal the latest discoveries that bring new evidence and insights into this major biblical narrative. Today we will conclude our series, Examining the Exodus. Now. Here's Pat.
1: Now, this is very interesting here what happens. King Tut's widow, Aksunamun, realizes the desperate situation that Egypt is in. And in a bizarre move, she begs Egypt's enemy, the Hittite king, Uma. Say that name ten times. Uma, And requests him to send one of his sons to marry her. In other words, Aksunamun was handing over Egypt to the Hittites. Absolutely stunned by the offer, Supi luli Uma sends an envoy to Egypt to make sure this is not a trick. And after confirming the offer, he sends his son Zidanza to marry the Egyptian queen. However, one of the Egyptian generals, Horemheb, assassinates the Hittite prince and takes over the throne of Egypt. And this brings an end to the once mighty 18th dynasty. Now, the collapse of Egypt's 18th dynasty is sudden and it is devastating. Egypt overnight goes from the world's superpower to a nation in so much trouble that the queen is willing to hand it over to an enemy empire. Now you need to ask yourself, what is the cause of this sudden collapse? Well, The events of the Exodus are a reasonable cause for the fall of the Egyptian empire. So when you look at the biblical text and the archaeological data now, the pieces of the puzzle begin to fit. Let's take a look some more at the sudden fall of the Egyptian empire. How do we know it suffered such a tremendous collapse? Well, we have an archaeological discovery called the Amarna tablets that we're going to look at here. Now remember, the Egyptian empire rose to its greatest height under Thuthmosis IV, the great warrior king. However, he suddenly dies in the prime of his life and the empire suddenly collapses. The collapse of Egypt coincides with the dates of the Exodus. Now, how do we know the Egyptian empire quickly collapsed since Egypt would never record such a humiliating defeat to a slave nation? We need to look not only at clues in Egypt, but from the surrounding nations. Now, during the 18th dynasty... Remember, Egypt rules from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. They rule over the Levant. The pharaohs have military outposts throughout the land of the Levant, throughout Canaan and Syria and parts of Jordan. And they regularly had military campaigns in the area to squelch any rebellion, capture slaves, and expand their territory. However, after the death of Thutmose IV, they suddenly lose control of the Levant. Now this coincides with the Israelite conquest of Canaan. What's significant to note is that Joshua never encounters the Egyptians when he invades Canaan. This is really significant because remember Canaan was Egyptian territory. Why was there no Egyptian presence during Joshua's invasion? Well as we studied earlier, the Egyptian empire was in a free fall and they had pulled out of Canaan. And this was an opportune time then for the Israelites to come in and take the land. Now, one of the most important historical documents that tell us what occurred in this period are the Amarna Tablets. The Amarna Tablets were discovered in 1887 among the ruins of Akhenaten's palace at a site known as El Amarna. 200 miles south of Cairo. Over 300 cuneiform tablets were found. Now, these tablets are correspondence letters between the Canaanite kings and Egypt during the last 10 years of Amenhotep III's reign and the 12 years of Akhenaten's reign. Remember, these are the two pharaohs that followed Thutmose IV, who I'm proposing here as the pharaoh of the Exodus, who died there in the Red Sea. Now, some of the letters have the regnal year of the pharaoh. So this tells us when the texts were written and received. Now, in these letters, we find something very interesting. We find the kings of Canaan pleading with Pharaoh Amenhotep III and Akhenaten to send military aid to the land because it is falling into a state of turmoil. In fact, the king state a group of nomads they call the Habiru, are now overtaking the city-states of Canaan. They send numerous letters pleading for help and asking why the pharaoh does not even respond to their pleas for help. An example is a letter from Abdi Heba, the ruler of Jerusalem, who was concerned about a bunch of marauding nomads known as the Habiru. Now, Abdi Heba affirms his loyalty to the Pharaoh and pleads for help. This is what he writes. He writes this, At the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times I prostrate myself. All the territories of the king have rebelled. May the king take care of this land. If there are archers here this year, all the territories of the king will remain intact. But if there are no archers, the territories of the king, my lord, will be lost. The invading force in Canaan... Are identified as the habiru now the term habiru means marauding nomads and this term generally refers to a group of invading nomads but in the amarna tablets this is apparently a very large army here remember after 40 years of desert wandering this would be the time the hebrews would be invading the land and many scholars see a connection between the designation of habiru and Hebrew there. Now, another significant highlight in the Amarna letters is that several letters are written by the Canaanite city kings against the king of Shechem, whose name is Labayu. Now, the Canaanite kings protest that Labayu has aligned himself with this invading groups of the Habiru, who have set up their headquarters around the city of Shechem. And the kings further warn that if Egypt doesn't come, Labayu will take more land, including Jerusalem. Now, the name Labayu means Lion of Yahweh. In the book of Genesis, the patriarchs settled in Shechem for significant periods of time. In fact, Jacob's land was originally in Shechem, and that is where he bought the burial land for his family. In Joshua 24.32, they go and bury the bones of Jacob there. Therefore, Labayu may have been a worshipper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his alliance with Israel would fit in this context. Now, in the Bible, Joshua takes Jericho, then he takes Ai, and then takes the city of Bethel. Joshua sets up his base camp between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, there in Joshua chapter 8. And the city of Shechem rests between these two mountains. Joshua marches his people to Shechem, and interestingly does not attack Shechem, nor does he attack Beth Haven, because that is Shechem's territory. Now, the Amarna tablets affirm the fall of the Egyptian empire, which we can reasonably conclude resulted from the catastrophes of the Exodus. And the Amarna tablets affirm the conquest narrative of Joshua as well. So when you have the right date, the archaeological data and the biblical texts come together nicely. Now, once again, I went through a lot of facts and you listening on the radio, and I don't expect you to memorize them. But I encourage you to go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org, and read my article on the Exodus Examined. Or you can re-listen to the show at your pace and soak in all the facts that I am stating. Now, the fall of the sudden collapse of Egypt, which is what we would expect, is also further confirmed in the fall of the Mitanni Empire. So let's take a look at that. And as we study the Exodus, remember, we're looking for what we call historical synchronisms or historical events that correspond to the events of the Exodus. Remember, the Egyptians would not record their defeat to the nation of Israel for it was humiliating to the nation. The Pharaoh needed to be portrayed as an invincible God, and news of a defeat would alert surrounding nations of Egypt's sudden vulnerability. Therefore, we need to look for clues from the surrounding nations. Now, Egypt's height of power occurs during the 18th dynasty between 1550 and 1290 BC. Under Thutmose IV, the empire is at the pinnacle of her power. Egypt controls the territories from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates River. Suddenly Thutmose IV dies and Egypt's empire suddenly collapses. And remember, Thutmose IV is the one I propose, is the Pharaoh of Egypt. Egypt loses control of the Levant and withdraws from Canaan. And as Canaan falls into disarray, the kings of Canaan in the Amarna letters plead for help from Egypt, but Egypt is unable to respond. The death of Tutmosis IV and the collapse of Egypt coincide with the date of the Exodus, if you take the 1406 BC date of the Exodus. Now, the evidence for the collapse of Egypt's empire is further confirmed by the fall of her ally nation of Mitanni. Now, the Mitanni kingdom flourished from 1500 to 1340 BC. This empire covered the area of modern-day southeastern Turkey, northern Syria and northern Iraq. The other empire that loomed to the north was the empire of Hatti or the Hittites. They occupied the territory of eastern Turkey. Both empires of Hatti and Mitanni wanted access then to the ocean. They wanted access to the Mediterranean, which they both didn't have. To gain access to the Mediterranean, they would have to go through the Levant Corridor which was controlled by Egypt. This corridor there is in northern Canaan, which gives them access to the Mediterranean. The Egyptian controlled that corridor and the Egyptian pharaohs often battled with Hatti and Mitanni to keep control of this Levant corridor. Now Thutmose IV decided on a better strategy to keep control of the territory. And he decided it would be better to build an alliance with one of these nations, the Hittites or Mitanni. There, then he wouldn't have to be battling them uh, all the time. So Egypt had a relationship with both nations. They traded frequently with the Hittites and the Empire of Mitanni. Well, Thutmose IV decided to build an alliance with Mitanni, and this alliance sealed Egypt's control of the territories from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates and gave Mitanni access to the Mediterranean Ocean, to her west. And as a result of this alliance, Hatti, the Hittites, became an enemy of Egypt and Mitanni. Well, with the death of Thutmose IV and Egypt's empire crumbling, Egypt withdraws from the Levant. Amenhotep III can't hold on to the Levant and withdraws from the territory. Now Hatti... Seeing Egypt's downfall, realizes their opportunity to attack Mitanni and they seize control of the Mediterranean corridor. And the warrior king Suppiluliuma I crosses the Euphrates and destroys the capital city of Mitanni, Washukani, and the Mitanni empire is crushed. So the fall of Mitanni, Egypt's ally, shows just how great and rapid Egypt collapsed from their position as the world's superpower. Obviously something catastrophic occurred in Egypt to bring down this mighty empire so rapidly. And an event like the Exodus is a very reasonable explanation. The date of the Exodus and the events of the Exodus coincide with the collapse of Egypt and her allies. We've gone through a lot of information here on the Exodus. I think there's a substantial amount of biblical as well as archaeological evidence to confirm, indeed, this as a historical event. And I don't expect you to get all this information down listening on the radio. So I encourage you to go to my website, evidenceandanswers.org, and read the article. The Exodus examined, or you can take your time listening to this show again and really soak in that information that we're going over. Now we're looking at the archaeological evidence for the exodus event and we've gone through quite a bit we talked about the rise of the mighty 18th dynasty of egypt and its sudden collapse after the death of their pharaoh tooth moses the fourth and i propose he is the pharaoh of the exodus and indeed after he dies the egyptian empire goes from the pinnacle of its power and suddenly it just completely collapses well we have Another document here as well called the Ipuer Papyrus, and this is a very interesting document. Now, if you remember, the ten plagues ravaged the land of Egypt, and so great was its destruction that after the seventh plague, Pharaoh's servants exclaimed, Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? There in Exodus 10, verse 7. Now, critics argue that such an event would have been noted somewhere, but there's no record of such catastrophes in the Egyptian records. Well, there is a famous document named the Ipuer Papyrus, or Papyrus Leiden. This ancient document was obtained by a Swedish diplomat named Giovanni Anastasi, and he sold it to the Leiden Museum in Holland in 1828. The significance of this manuscript was not discovered until it was translated by British Egyptologist Alan Gardner. Now, this manuscript dates sometime prior to the 13th century BC, and the style of writing matches the hieratic script used in the period of the Exodus. Now, this text is a lamentation written by an Egyptian official named Ipour. He laments over the disasters that struck Egypt sometime prior to the 13th century B.C. Ipuer describes a series of disasters that struck Egypt, which appear to be very similar to the plagues of the Exodus. The similarities are striking. Ipuer records the following. He records the Nile River turned to blood. Men thirst as they search for water along the Nile, just as recorded in the book of Exodus. Fire from on high torches the land, trees are destroyed, grain is gone from the land, the cattle are in agony, darkness covers the land, the firstborn children are dead and there is groaning in the land, the jewelry of the women is given to slaves, and slaves flee into the desert like nomads who live in tents. Well, if you read the plagues of Egypt and the events of the Exodus there in Egypt, there is a remarkable parallel to the plagues of Egypt. And the date of this manuscript and a close parallel to the biblical account make it reasonable to conclude that Ippur was writing about the Exodus plagues. Then later on, about 1368 B.C., about 40 years after the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, Amenhotep IV became the pharaoh of Egypt. Now, soon after taking the throne, he changed his name to Akhenaten, means one blessed of Aten, the sun god. He suddenly, for some unknown reason, abandons the Egyptian pantheon of gods and orders everyone to worship only one god, Aten. In fact, he moved the capital from Thebes to central Egypt, the present-day Tel Armana. He built temples for Aten and there claimed that he alone had access to Aten. So this rendered the Egyptian priesthood unnecessary. Akhenaten went on to make religious reforms throughout the land. He closed temples to other gods, tore down their images, and forbid rituals and literature for other gods. The cities that were dedicated to other gods were eventually abandoned. And worship of Aten included no images, and worship was reduced to an offering on an altar. Aten alone was to be worshipped to the exclusion of all other gods. In fact, a hymn to Aten was discovered in the tomb of Ai, one of the king's secretaries. And it tells of Aten being the creator and sustainer of the world. Then it proclaims that he alone is God and there is no other. He writes, How manifold are thy works! They are hidden from the sight of man, O soul God, like unto whom there is no other. Thou didst fashion the earth according to thy desire when thou wast alone. Here Aten is described as the only God who is the creator of the world and of all living things. Egyptologist Cyril Aldred states, The monotheism of Akhenaten proclaims is not the henotheism of earlier times the belief in one supreme God without any assertion of his unique nature, but the worship of an omnipotent and singular divinity. The full development of the king's thought is seen in the careful suppression late in the reign of the plural form of God. Wherever it appears in the earlier text, this is now but one God, and the king was his prophet. So the type of monotheism Akhenaten promoted was unique and unparalleled in Egyptian civilization. Akhenaten was viewed as a heretic and his beliefs stood strongly against the religion that was practiced for centuries. And when he died, Egypt returned to their pantheon of gods. Now we have to ask the question, what caused Akhenaten's sudden and drastic change in his religion? must have been something significant that would motivate him to abandon the traditional gods of Egypt and instill an exclusive worship of one god and forbidding the worship of others. Reasonable answer is that he witnessed the impotence of the Egyptian gods and heard of the one supreme god who delivered a people from captivity with his mighty hand just about 40 years prior. Meanwhile, plagues still ravaged the land of Egypt and the empire was disintegrating. It could be that he knew the account of the Hebrew God defeating the gods of Egypt during the time of his grandfather, Thutmose IV. This may have influenced his decision to abandon the gods of Egypt, who are impotent against the one true God. and As a result, he began to worship Aten as the only God, and interestingly, Aten's attributes begin to mirror that of Yahweh, the God of Israel. The life of this heretic king of Egypt, I believe, points in the direction that confirms the historical authenticity of the Exodus. Well, we have one remaining question. Remember, I take the middle date of the Exodus, 1406 B.C. Most scholars will take the later date of 1260 B.C. because of the mention of the city of Ramses there in Exodus 1.11. How do we account for the name Ramses there appearing in Exodus 111? Most scholars believe this refers to Ramses II, the greatest king of the 19th dynasty who ruled from 1290 to about 1230 BC. That is why many scholars date the Exodus somewhere around 1260 or the mid 13th century BC. However, as we showed, we run into some serious problems with this late date. Now, if the city of the Exodus one is built for Ramses the second, then Moses was born after the Jews built the city of Ramses, the second rule for the passage states that the Israelites, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. Moses is born after this occurs. So it's not possible for Moses to grow up in Egypt, flee and live in exile in Midian, return and lead the Exodus and guide Israel for 40 years in the desert. And remember, when the Merneptah Stele was discovered, it was dated about 1210-1220 B.C. It states that Israel was already established in the land of Canaan. So who could Ramses be referring to in Exodus 1.11? Well, the name Ramses existed before 1200 B.C. There were Hyksos kings called Ramses earlier than the 15th century B.C. Also in the Joseph narrative, in the book of Genesis, A ruler named Ramses is named in Genesis chapter 47. So the author could be referring to a Ramses of an earlier period. This is a very plausible option here. Another possible explanation is that a later editor updated the name of the city to the modern name of Ramses. We find this practice in the Bible and in many historical works. Later scribes will use an updated name of a city or even a country because the prior name was changed or it was no longer used. So it could be one of those two explanations. Well, I hope you enjoyed this series on examining the Exodus. You know, for centuries, critics and liberal scholars have treated the Exodus as a legend invented by Jewish scribes of the 7th century BC. These scholars believe that the Israelites or Canaanites Who arose to prominence in the 7th century and created this story to give themselves a history and identity. And if this is true, the divine inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible would be in question if this important event was simply legendary. Well I believe the Exodus is a historical event recorded in the Bible by Moses. And when you look at the biblical text and the archaeology, you can build a case for the authenticity of this narrative. And if the date of 1406 is the correct date, as I have argued, I believe the world of the Bible and Near Eastern archaeology come together in a reasonable manner. Therefore, I believe we can conclude with reasonable confidence that the greatest event of the Old Testament is indeed a true and a historical event.
0: run out of time thank you for joining us here on evidence and answers radio broadcast we hope you enjoyed today's show if you would like pat to speak at your church bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference give him a call locally in hawaii that number is 483-0586 or you may contact him through the evidence and answers website that's evidence and org. to keep broadcasts like pat's on the air we rely on generous support from you our listeners for the opportunity to donate head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, so be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat (laughs) Zuccaro.